Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and on today's episode, I am so delighted to have my friend David McCallum joining us. I was introduced to David in 2014, shortly after he was released from prison. David was arrested at 16 years old and served 29 years in prison for a kidnapping and murder that he did not commit. In October of 2014, he was finally exonerated, meaning he was cleared of all wrongdoing. I met David only a couple of weeks after his release. We were introduced by my good friend Ray, one of the filmmakers behind the documentary David and Me, that tells the story of David's wrongful conviction and quest for justice. If you haven't seen the movie, I highly recommend it. One of the things that struck me when I first spoke to David was that so many of the same challenges that plague people who have been incarcerated apply equally to those who are exonerated. The layers of stigma and the societal barriers remain. I will let you hear about the experience directly from him. Here we go. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. Full transparency, I work at Castles and am beyond grateful for their generous support of this podcast. The things I love most about Castles are the firm's commitment to promoting a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive firm, and their ongoing support of the communities in which they operate. I look forward to sharing more about some of the exciting initiatives taking place at Castles over the course of the season. To find out more about Castles, check out castles.com or on Twitter at Castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. David, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always such a pleasure spending time with you. Oh, well, no problem. Thank you, Zoe, for having me on. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you guys. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Before we dive into life after incarceration, uh, which is really the focus of this podcast, I would love for you to share just a little bit about your life and your childhood leading up to the time of your arrest. Oh sure. So I was born in um, I was born in Dallas, South Carolina. Um, came to New York about around the age of eight. Uh, I think some people actually reminded me that it was, I was much younger than that when I came to New York. Um, my family, um, you know, so my family, you know, my mom and dad, my siblings, um, my, particularly my mom and dad, they, they wanted to get out of the South because they thought it was going to be better opportunities for them in New York or someplace in in New York. So we made the trip to New York and. Um, I grew up in, I want to say, I, I, I grew up in Bushwick section of Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, at a very young age. And, um, you know, I had grown up in Brooklyn. Brooklyn was, a, especially Bushwick, it was a, a mixture of things that was going on. A lot of violence here, violence there, and all that kind of stuff. And I come, I came from um, a close-knit family. You know, we stuck, kind of stuck together because we were, of course, coming from down south and didn't know much about New York, although we did have relatives there, living there already. So we kind of, kind of stuck together and stuff like that. And so I have three brothers and three sisters. You know, and um, you know, said so we got along pretty good. I was sort of in the middle, so that kind of made things kind of interesting for me growing up. So uh, I had some advantages one way or the other, and sometimes I was picked on a lot too. You know, so and that just kind of made for interesting upbringing with my siblings and stuff like that. But we, at the end of the day, we were pretty cool with each other. We, we got along, and we kind of had each other's back in some ways. You know. And, you know, I went to junior high school. I went to public school in, in New York City. I went to public school, PS45. And from there, I went to junior high school, 296. And eventually made my way to high school at Franklin K. Lane. I started off at East New York. But because I was I was not uh, the best of students, I should say, 
so they, they transferred me to a, a sort of lesser school where I could kind of pick up my grades a little bit, which I, I, I actually ended up doing. But of course, with me, I had made a lot of friends along the way, if you want to call them friends. And I started sort of veering off the track a little bit. I'm not going to school, skipping school and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how my young life sort of went sideways in some ways. Mm-hmm. And it kind of started with, with the guys that I was hanging out with. I um, not necessarily want to blame them because it was up to me to make the make the choices, which I, which I did, which wasn't always in the best interest of me, of course. And, you know, so I got in a little trouble as a youth and not to the extent where, you know, I was causing major trouble for anybody and stuff like that. I was just a person who gave my parents a little a bit, a bit of a difficult time, you know. So, it, again, it was interesting coming up and growing up. But um, at the same time, um, uh, I, I like to say um, part of that that life kind of molded me, too, in some ways. It kind of, I wouldn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily say it toughened me up, but it did give me a kind of a perspective. Of course, we'll speak to, we'll speak on that later on. I'm, I'm assuming uh, when I when I got incarcerated, you know, for my crime that I was, you know, falsely accused of committing. Um, so during my time in prison, I like to say some of that upbringing, for good or bad or indifferent, sort of like kind of shaped my life a little bit. Kind of, it kind of helped me survive that the rigors of of doing 29 years in prison. So, so. What transpired from, you know, you're kind of starting to hang out with the wrong crowd and get into a little bit of trouble, but it sounds, you know, pretty harmless to your, of course, we now know wrongfully identified as the person who's involved in this kidnapping and murder of Nathan Blenner, and you're arrested and picked up. What what happened there? Okay, sure, sure, sure. So on that on the day on October twentieth that day, I remember it very vividly. I would never obviously I would never forget it. Um, you know, my dad was involved in a in a car accident. You know, he was with a couple of his buddies and you know, they were so they were drinking, right? And and so he got into an accident. So my mom, my sister, we went we went to the hospital to, to see what was going on with him and and so when we got to the hospital, you know, we found out that my dad, of course, was in a car accident, and but he was going to be okay. And the hospital notified us that they they, they were going to have to keep him over, overnight for observation and that sort of thing. And so my mom, my sister, and I eventually we made it back home. And I remember sometime around ten o'clock, ten thirty, or maybe about ten o'clock on a Sunday, October twentieth. I said to my mom that I want to go to the game room for a few blocks from where I live for a little while. My mom was telling me, you know, you know, it's it's kind of late, David. You might want to stay at home because you, know, you got to get ready for school tomorrow, which made a lot of sense. But of course, I told her, I, I kind of assured her that I'd be back. You know, I'm just going to spend, I'm just going to be gone for, for a few minutes. So I went to the game room. I saw a couple of my friends. We started hanging out in front of the game room and, and stuff like that. And and before I know it, um, a, a squad car unmarked squad car uh, pulled up and I see three guys get out the car and I'm like, okay, I'm, I didn't do anything wrong. So I really thought nothing of it. So because in that, in that neighborhood in Bushwick, especially at that time, watching detectives get out of a car is, wasn't uncommon, right? I mean, we, we became accustomed to it, right? So they walked over to me and they had my picture, photo in, my, in their hand and said, are you David McCallum? I said, yes. And they said, uh, would you like to come down to the precinct for questioning? First of all, I wasn't going to say no anyway because they would have dragged me anyway. But I, I, I know I didn't do anything wrong, so I volunteered. I, you know, I figured like, you know, what, I go down there, uh, maybe something happened in somewhere around my neighborhood, and they want I don't know. So I went to the precinct. It was uh, they taking me upstairs to a second room floor, and they asked me some questions. And one of the detectives, um, police officers at the time, asked me, "Did I know anything about somebody being killed in a park a week before?" No, I'm sorry, it was October 27th. And so I um, 
I told him no. So he slapped me in the face. Like then that's when I was like, oh my God. I'm still to myself, like, what 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 happened here? And then he picked up a chair and he asked me again. He said, if you um don't tell me what I want to hear, I'm gonna hit you in the head with this chair. Well, I'm gonna hit you with this chair, he said. And so that's when I made the confession. And but prior to me coming to the police station, my childhood friend Willie Stuckey was already there. And he had already made statements, confessions to um witnessing me commit the crime. So uh, and that's how it all kind of got started in the police station. And um, so it was kind of my word against Willie. And I'm, I'm telling the detectives things that make, that make the, my story appear more believable because I was under the impression, as the you know, officers told me, that they were going to let me go home. I'm 16 years old. I believe I haven't really been in trouble with the law before. I believed them, right? Um, so, mm-hmm. But obviously, um, they didn't let me, um, they wouldn't let me call my mom. But but they finally called my mom after the videotape confessions were made and the confessions were made. So, but they told her because my mom wanted to come down to the police station, and they told her no, you can come, you know, you can come down to you know to court the next day, which she did. So that moment where you got picked up by the cop and you agreed to get into the car was that your last time, sort of in the outside world? Oh, absolutely, yeah, um, yes, exactly. So that was the very last time. Um, that I was that I uh, that was in, I was in society for the next twenty nine years. For the next twenty nine years of my life, yes. And so I remember, um, you know, the next day when I went to court in the morning, my mom was there, and she walked. The, the judge gave me a couple of minutes to speak to her, and she just she just simply asked me one question. She said, "David, did you do this?" And I told her, "Mom, no, I did not." You know, she she never asked me again. She never questioned me. She never nothing nothing like that. Because during at the time that this crime was committed or said to be committed, I was in the park playing handball with my sister and her friends. In fact, Willie Stuckey, co-accused, he was also in the park at the time too. So we had alibis, but because family members, they always expected to protect their family, right? I mean, so my my alibis. And my mom and my sister were my alibi, but it really didn't, I mean, stand up in court because they were family, you know, but mm-hmm. I was, I was literally someplace else. And I have not, I had never been to that part of Queens with this, with this Mr. Nathan Brenner, uh, where he lived. I, I've never been there in my life. You know, I don't even know how to drive. So we supposed to have gotten to a car, supposed to have kidnapped the Mr. Brenner, put him in the car and drove off with him. Neither Willie stuck you knew how to drive a car. So there's just so many variables that went into these these false confessions that, that just didn't make sense on the surface, but, you know. Yeah, the story is uh, truly unbelievable. And I'm sure that this is something people are going to want to know a lot more about and that we're actually going to fast forward over a bunch of it okay. here because I want to get to sort of a later stage in your life. But I, what I will say is, if you're curious to know more about the story of David's wrongful conviction, I I definitely encourage you to check out David and Me. It's an incredible film, and it really dives into the details of everything that led to the wrongful conviction and also ultimately to your exoneration. The one thing actually from this period of time that you served that I do want to ask you about, just because it's one of the many things about you that leaves me so inspired is this letter writing campaign that you went on as you maintained your innocence. How many letters did you send out asking for help? After my um, my state and federal appeals were exhausted, I mean, after after that happened, there's almost like no hope really, right? So what I decided to do is, is I decided to start a letter writing campaign. So I would write like 
the Daily News, the New York Post, and I would write legal firms, law firms, anybody that could get somebody's attention. Some would respond, let me know that they couldn't help me and all this kind of stuff. I understood. I got it. I re- understood. I respected their decisions and all that stuff. So I, write, I must have wrote about, I mean, I'll say at least around 600 letters, at least. You know, some 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 places I would write more than once because I was like, my attitude was like, I'm not going to take no for an answer. I mean, I'm just not. Okay, somebody's going to hear me. I'm going to force somebody to tell me that they really, really, really can't help me. And so that was my mindset. And so for me, I, um, you know, a friend of mine in the prison, his name is Earl Coleman. I, I really like, to, I really want to name drop this guy because if not for him, I, I, I literally, I don't know if I'd have, I don't know, I'd probably still be in that place before we know, right? But he was reading this magazine called The Sun, right? And it was one of those literary magazines that you could read, had a lot of short stories in there, essays and that sort of thing, poems, stuff like that. For me, because we worked in the facility law library together, I had no real intentions of reading the magazine. I just wanted to sort of peruse it because I was on the verge of going back to the housing unit for the night, you know? And so I said, Earl, let me let me, let me see that. So he let me see it. I kind of peruse it. I'm, I'm, I'm combing through the magazine and I see an, an interview with a person named Ken Klonsky and a person named Hubert, I'm sorry, Ruben Hurricane Carter. Now, of course, I know and I knew who Dr. Carter was, right? I knew he was a former prize fighter, but I also knew that he was wrongfully convicted for a double murder in Patterson, New Jersey. So I, as I'm reading the interview, I made copies of the interview and I wrote the Sun magazine because I wanted to find out who was Ken Klonsky because I wanted to get in contact with Ruben you know, so I wrote the magazine. They wrote me back. They said, "Listen, Mr. McCallum, we can't give you the information without giving without checking the source first. So they said they would get back. They said they would forward my letter on to Mr. Klonsky. And about a week later, um, Ken, as I can now call him, a friend, obviously, um, he wrote me back and he said, "You know, David, um, your letter touched me very deeply." He told me that he couldn't promise me anything which oh, that was okay with me. I understood that just the fact that somebody responded to me was a victory for me. Mm-hmm. And shortly, shortly after I was able to meet Ruben for the very first time and we hit it all pretty good. And I mean, you know, he's, he was a, it's funny. He was a funny guy, you know, but he was also a serious guy at the same time, you know? And um, he, he told me, he said, look, he didn't say when he said, no, I'm sorry. He didn't say if he said, when we get you out of there, you're going to have to live a pristine life. And of course, I knew exactly what he meant by that. But I, and I was already prepared for that during my time incarcerated because I was one of those sort of what they call model prisoners where I didn't get any trouble or anything like that. I just I just did my time and it just did what I needed to do to survive the place, you know, and that's that's how that that's how that part of it went. When you get out, you're going to have to live a pristine life. I mean, that's a really powerful statement. And when you say you knew he meant what he meant by that, what what did he mean? Okay, so sometimes when when people get out of prison, regardless of how long they how long they're there, um, sometimes things go sideways. Some some people get out and they don't they don't really have a, a support system, uh, you know. Sadly, and some of them they don't have a plan, right? Because mm-hmm. for whatever reason, and for me, I was fortunate enough to have a support. I had a major support system behind me. But also had a plan too, you know, and, and sometimes um, like, the people don't have that. And so when you don't have those kind of resources available to you, I mean, you can, you have, some people have a tendency to sort of revert back to their old self, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And that that's always asking for trouble. And I've seen it 
when I was incarcerated, I've had I've seen you know guys come back two or three or four different times, you know, during my time in prison. It's kind of sad, but I never like sort of passed judgment on anybody because I had I had guys tell me, look, you know, I'm a I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a criminal. That's what I am. And that's what I do. This is not going to stop me, and it is kind of sad, but that's the way they. You know, decided to live to live their lives, and but it's not easy. Like I said before, like when you don't, if you don't have a plan or anything like that, and any goals you want to reach when you get out, and 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 so when you don't have those kind of things at your disposal, I mean, sometimes things tend to go sideways. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to come back to in a minute. Before we get there, I'd love to take you back to the day you were released. So for. A lot of people, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for a lot of people, you know, there's a date that you're set to be released, you know that's coming. And so there's some time to sort of mentally prepare and sort of think through that transition. For you, that looked a little bit different. Can you walk us through what that day was like for you? So I remember this like this was yesterday. So I, don't know, I was in a housing unit at the time in Otisville. And um, I had a phone ring actually at the police, at the officer's, the correct officer's desk. He said, McCallum, come in for a minute. He said, your counselor wants to speak to you. I mean, your counselor wants you to come to come down to her office. So I go down to her office. I'm not, I'm, I don't know what's going on. I don't know, you know, what's happening here. So I go down to her office, and my lawyer, Oscar Michelin, and co-counsel, Laura Cohen, is on the other end of the line. So they said, David. They said, David, listen, um, you're going to be going to court tomorrow. And um, oh boy! So um, and then Laura said they're gonna no Oscar said they're gonna let you out. Good. Excuse me. That this uh, oh boy. Mm-hmm. So um, th- those are my lawyers. Like, they've been working with me for years. So I really had no reason, not really, to believe what they were saying, you know. But at the same time, I'm I'm, I'm because I've been beaten down by the legal system for so long and I didn't know what to believe and what to expect and what this and that. I, I really didn't kind of, maybe it didn't hit me at the moment. I don't know, but I really didn't believe them in a sense, right? I'm like, oh, oh wow. So they told me what was going to be happening. I'm going to be going to court, going to court the next morning. And, you know, because they, they had a meeting with the district attorney, Ken Thompson, the late district attorney, Ken Thompson in Brooklyn. And he said he was gonna let he said he was gonna let us let me out, and they were gonna post humanely um, exonerate Willie Stuckey because you know unfortunately he passed away in prison. And um, so I go back to the housing unit, and I'm I'm laying on my bed, and I'm just I'm, I don't know I don't know what to, I'm scared to call my mom because I don't want to like you know get her excited you know because I, I mean if she's the even killed person anyway you know so but at the same time I wanted to kind of hold off from speaking to her. But she already knew. <laughs> not, 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 you know, that was a, it was it was a long night. I can remember getting up in, in the morning really early. I was packing my stuff up because so I, I had a lot of stuff. And I was giving stuff away because I was kind of taking a leap of faith that I wasn't going to be coming back. <laughs> you know, even though I wasn't. But um, so I gave a lot of stuff away to friends, whether it's clothing, whatever, and food and stuff, and whatever it was. I gave it away except obviously my pictures and photos and personal items and stuff like that. So members from the district attorney's office came to the jail to get me, you know, and on our way back down, you know, it was pretty cool. So one of the detectives started playing the hurricane music. 
by Bob Dylan, you know? And he said, you know who that is? I said, of course I know who that is. I, I mean, you know, I know that that's Bob Dylan. You know, he's singing a hurricane. I mean, yeah. So he said, yeah, man. So we was talking and it was, they, these guys, they, they, these detectives just happened to grow up in Brooklyn themselves and they was kind of, they were kind of telling me how things changed and, you know, over the years and stuff like that. So we had a really decent conversation, you know, to be honest with you. So um, we get down to court, they take, they take me to the um, Brooklyn District Attorney's office first to meet Ken Thompson and his family. He introduced me to his wife, you know? And um, so I met him and of course, Ken, Mary Ellen, Oscar, the lawyer. I mean, it was, everybody was there, Laura, the other attorney, everybody was there. So I get there and I speak to Ken Thompson and he told me, he said, look, David, um, when you walk over to the courthouse, I want you to keep your head up, you know? And I said, sure. And because I and I, I guess at that time I was like I know what he meant like you know you have nothing to be ashamed of because I was going to be handcuffed, you know still because um, I'm technically still in, in custody so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I walked to the courtroom and what Ken Thompson also did was he invited Willie Stuckey's mom to court, you know. And so when I saw her in the elevator because we was going up to the floor of the proceedings, I just um she just started breaking down, you know, because Willie wasn't there, obviously. And I, I felt, of course, felt really, really bad for her. And she said, you know, you're my son now. That's what she said to me. And that really, really got me. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it really did. So I go in there. So we go upstairs to the courtroom. As I'm walking into the courtroom, I see, I see your sister. <laughs> She's like the first person I saw, you know, like, oh, wow. And she had a friend. I mean, it was packed, you know. I, was, I just felt really like, Good. And so when the judge and the lawyers and the DA is expressing, you know, talking about the case, you were there too, no? I was in Toronto. You was in Toronto, but your sister was, Julie was definitely there. My sister Bobby, was there Julie, and, everybody and, was we, there and we were being like, I was getting real-time messages you, and footage. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. And so when the judge um, exonerated us, I just, I mean, I just put my hands, put my head in my lap and just started Letting it go, because that was just mm-hmm. a lot of, that was like 29 years of frustration. Like, I mean, literally, like, frustration, you know, because my, I had, I, I suffered a, a few losses along the way when I was incarcerated. Like, my dad, you know, he passed away in 2005, and I was, I mean, everything just sort of came back, boom. And, of course, Willie not being there, and I'm sitting next to his mom. It, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot going on there. So, and that mm-hmm. was, uh, that was how that went down, yeah. And then, so... I mean, you have this incredible moment where the judge reads a statement that, again, you can see in David and me, and I I can't do it justice, but it's so powerful. And, And then you get to walk out the doors. And this is now your first time outside in 29 years. Can you tell us what was going on for you in that moment? What, like, what were you seeing, hearing, feeling that whole sensory experience what was that like oh wow okay so when we like when i walked when i first because my mom and family had kind of got there late they got caught in traffic and but when i walked out of um when i walked out of the court building i just i seen all those people like clapping and I'm like oh my god i mean i Oh, I, was like, I mean, robbie's dad was there he's a great guy by the way i mean it was uh, it was, I just, I was in another, I couldn't believe it. I just, I really, I really couldn't believe it. There was just so many people there, like clapping and cheering. And, you know, I was like, okay. So then I got in the van and we drove out. And as we drove, leaving from the court building, there was another group of people, like in front of the entrance, like clapping and 
like hooting and hollering. That was a that was a fantastic feeling. And uh, you know, I had my niece, my little niece, was in the car in the, in the van and hearing her talk. You know, for, you know, it was like it was it was like um, it was unreal. Like all this the hard work that that was put into this case. You know, it all came to fruition on that day. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a it was such a, a really really good feeling. And and and, and for me, one of the I, I would say one of the, the best feelings that I had is when I went home. And, and saw my sister, older sister, for the first time in 29 years, and um, that was a—I mean—that was a fantastic moment for me. You know, even though I, you know, she, of course she couldn't communicate like like we can, but I, I used to always talk to her when I was incarcerated. But whatever kind of noise she made, I was—it was okay with me, you know. But to, to see her in person in that long, it was. Um, that was that was another fantastic moment. So there were so many highs. There were there were definitely no lows, with the exception of Willie not being able to be there to, to enjoy this too. You know, so yeah, being able to see your family and touch them and yes. you know hug them. So now in the weeks that followed that, I would love for you to share a little bit about what that was like for you, just sort of like experiencing you know being out in society again. I one thing. I'll never forget you sharing with me. We had dinner. I was in New York a couple of weeks later and we had dinner and you explained to me what it was like to be on the subway for the first time. Can you share that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, so, uh, you know, we were we were going to, I forgot this, this, the place where we were going to do an interview and we took the train and we were, I know we were in lower Manhattan for sure. And this platform was so crowded. I mean, and I saw this guy. He had a cell phone. I don't know what he was doing, but he was leaning over the platform with the phone. And I'm like, what? I'm looking at Oscar. I said, Oscar, what is this guy? Is he going to jump off? You know? But th- that was typical New York. I mean, I, people. that's what people did. That's how much things has changed. And the train was coming. And I was like, is this guy going to jump? So Oscar was like, Dave, welcome home. You know, he one of those time, kind of things. So we get on the train. <laughs> It's very, very crowded. Aaron is there taking, doing the, the, the cameras thing, and Aaron and, and Mark, and of course, Ray was there we're along with Oscar and myself. And Aaron is in between people take because he had the camera on me and on Oscar and everybody and all that kind of stuff. And then it was so unique and bizarre. But being on the train for the first time like that, it was so crowded. I was, I recall me sweating a lot because I was really nervous. And that, you know, because in prison, one of the most valuable assets that you can have in there is space, right? You don't want to be crowded around people because you, know, you never know anything can happen at any given time. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I had that that mindset still, you know? Um, so I was sweating and nervous because I didn't know what to expect with all those people around, so. I remember you saying like, you were worried about looking at somebody the wrong way or, t- oh, yeah. or brushing oh, yeah. up against somebody in the wrong way. Oh, or... most definitely. And this is why I, I think I started sweating too, because I wanted to sort of constrict my body because there were women around and, 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 you know, stuff like that too. And I didn't want to like sort of lean on them to make them give any sort of false impressions and stuff like that, you know? So I did, plus I didn't, oh, I didn't want to look at anybody. I didn't want anybody to think I was, you know, looking at them a certain way to whatever cause trouble and all that stuff. So there's so much stuff that went in, that went into that, you know? So I was actually trying to contort my body in a way not to press up on you know, people, particularly women and stuff like that, because you have people out that do that stuff. I was, those things, were, they could have been, it could have been overthinking me. I could have been overthinking that, at, you know, but at the same time, I just wanted to be cautious and not 
you know, get caught up in any stuff. But it turned out to be pretty good, though. Train ride. And is there anything else that stands out like that? The, the impact of, I think what I really want to look at is what is the impact of spending that kind of time in prison on on you and who you are as you come out and try try to reintegrate into the community and try to get your legs back under you? Oh, it's um, for me, you know, I think it was a little bit easier for me, as I mentioned previously, um, you know, having a support system, having people that I could come and talk to if things didn't go right, I didn't feel right about certain things and stuff like that, that always helped. But it was those moments when I had to sort of fend for myself, like, you know, when I'm on my own and, and I'm traveling on my own and stuff like that, where I kind of got a bit nervous, and you know, about how I can adapt to certain things on the outside, you know. Um, my, my communication with the women was, I, I didn't know how, to be honest, but still such a long time. So I was always nervous about that. Like, what, what would I say to a woman, so to speak? Like, I mean, what would I say to them and how would they react? And if they didn't react in the way that I wanted to, how would I, be, how would I respond? Would I shut down and that sort of thing? So there, there was a lot going on, going on there, but, you know, so... Yeah, well, and and I'm curious because, so one of the things I sort of wanted to speak to you about is really to dig into the the kind of layers of stigma associated with criminality and incarceration. And in your case, it's a really nuanced layer because you were wrongfully convicted of a crime you didn't commit and you spent this time in prison and you come out and did you still, despite all of that, face any of that stigma? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so like, so when I was applying for my 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 license, you know, my, you know all the non-driver's license and all that stuff, you know, you have to check certain boxes and stuff, right? And so, do you check the box about guilty of a crime before, or you know, are you are not, right? And I didn't really know what to what to check there because, as far as I was concerned, I was never guilty of a crime. Although I spent that time in prison, you know? So filling out certain mm -hmm. paperwork and stuff like that was, was pretty good. But I know, I think for me, what really helped me in that area, what really kind of helped me um, time away from my support system, that is when I got the job at the Legal Aid Society. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one thing I want to say, and I want to really honestly say this with, with all the truthfulness in the world, is that they really accepted me for, for who I was. As, as a person who was formerly incarcerated, they knew my story and all that kind of stuff, but they treated me like a, a regular person, so to speak, right? And I appreciated that mm -hmm. coming from them, and um, and I spent uh, a good four years there with them, and um, it was it was a really really nice experience there. I got to learn certain things about you know you know about the legal system, about you know a juvenile, you know, because I did a lot of public speaking. I was able to do a lot of things based on that job itself, you know, aside from the public speaking that I was doing independently. But the stigma of being incarcerated, whether you're innocent or guilty, is the same. It's the same. I mean, sometimes when people hear the fact that you've been incarcerated, whether you're guilty or innocent, it really doesn't matter to them. The fact that you were in that environment, regardless of how long you was in that environment for, you are a guilty person to them. And, and they're going to treat you as such, you know? So um, it's it, it, it was a hurtful feeling. It, 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 I had one experience yeah. where... Um, like no, the, the 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 popular motor vehicles experience that I had, I really that's when I kind of really like, and I was a, a person who's even killed, but I felt really really bad about that particular experience because, for me, I'm like I, I'm on the outside and you know I'm, I didn't do anything wrong and stuff like that, but you know you know it's, it's that that stigma it's a real it's, stigma is very real in other words. Yeah, yeah, and what and tell us a, just about the impact of 
the legal aid clinic, t- you know, taking this chance on you, treating you like you were any regular person. And also, of course, as you've kind of pointed to, like you're still getting your legs under you. You're still sort of figuring out how to be in society with everyone else. What was the impact on you of of them taking that chance? It was a very positive impact, for sure, because again, like, I mean, the whole department that that I work with, I mean, it was respect. It was like, you know, I think they felt bad for me too, you know, because of my experience. But I think for me, they, as time went on, they got to learn my character and they got to see how I conducted myself, how I treated people, you know, that sort of thing. And I was kind of always the same person every day. I would come in, you know, plus it felt good to have a job. You know, that's for, that's, that's, it really felt good to have a job. Believe me. You know, I wasn't getting paid a lot, but it was, it was enough. And I, I want to say this before I continue this point. One of the one of the things that, that I'm not just saying this because it's your sister, but what are the what are the what are the things that truly helped me above all else when I after I got incarcerated was the GoFundMe that your sister set up on my behalf. I mean, you have no you have no idea how much. I mean, because my, my family didn't have a lot of money, you know, they didn't. I'm just going to be honest about you with that, but. The fact that she did that was so helpful, and it took so much pressure off everybody in my family that um, I didn't come out needing anything. Yeah. Yeah. It was. And she did that. Yep. And I, <laughs> I can't tell you how how helpful that was. Yeah. It was. I mean, and I didn't even know she was doing it. I didn't know she was, I mean, she, I had no idea. All I knew is I had somebody come to me. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't think she ever like directly told me she did it. I think she indirectly hinted at it, but, but I didn't pick up on it. But that was, it was, that was, um, That was, that was, that was, okay, I'll never forget that. That was, I mean, oh boy, you know? And I, I mean, I was able to just focus on other things other than finances. I mean, it wasn't a million dollars or anything like that, but it was more than enough for me to get my feet on the ground. Yeah. And I will never forget that gesture by Julia. <laughs> yeah. I tear up every time I talk about that. because that... Well, Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I, you made me tear up too. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was fantastic. That, I mean, and I think that's you know that's a, such a huge part of it, and we recognize that. And but for so many people who don't necessarily have that kind of support coming out, like how impossible it is to get back on your feet. And I I imagine you've probably have had friends and other people that you've known and seen them go through that experience. Yes. And and, and, and in part, because I sort of mentioned this earlier, how I've seen guys come back and forth to prison. And one of the things is a lack of resources, a lack of financial stability, you know? And so some guys are the ones that didn't brand themselves as career criminals. They went out there taking a chance again, and they failed. And part of that failure is because of the lack of resources that they didn't have, or that they have, or didn't have when they got released. 
But for me, not that I was going to commit a crime anyway, because I wasn't, believe me, I didn't have to be concerned with stuff like that because uh, <laughs> your sister stepped out there and did what, what I mean, I, like I said before, I, I had no idea she was doing this. None. Well, well, and what, like, this is actually such an important piece of this is what what do you want to say to people out there about how we as a society can do a better job of supporting people who are re-entering the community after spending time in prison? Oh, sure. I would say to them, you know, uh, based because due to my experience of, of incarceration for so long, I've seen many talents in prison. I've seen guys sing. I've seen guys play instruments. I've seen guys play, do whatever, whatever talent that's available, that was available on the outside, I literally seen it on the inside, right? And so when people come home, most of the people that I've met over my time in prison, they are, they redeemed themselves. They've shown qualities. They've shown the fact that they are ready to be, to re-enter society. They've shown, you know, they, they separated themselves from others in terms of this, I want to do this when I go home. I want to be a positive impact on my community when I go home. And they have the receipts to show for it. I mean, and, I, and I've seen this. So I think for society as a whole, I think it's important. Now, of course, you have people that come out, as I just mentioned earlier, with bad intentions and all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not talking about those individuals. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the individuals who, you know, are serious about recommitting themselves and rededicating themselves to public service and helping people. You know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more of those guys than not. Right. You know, fortunately. Yeah. And I think society, just, and, I know, and I know it's hard because, you know, the, the stigma of, of incarceration, I, but this, there's a separation that comes with this. I mean, if you really give somebody a, a real opportunity to prove themselves, because trust me, there are a lot of, a lot of guys that are incarcerated now that just need an opportunity to prove themselves. And they are willing to prove themselves if given the opportunity. But society doesn't necessarily operate that way all the time, which is understandable. But there's some good people, despite what they've done in the past. And, they, and, the, and people that I spoke to, will be, they'll be the first to admit, listen, I made some bad choices. I hurt some people. I did X, Y, and Z. But you know what? I mean, I'm talking about Guys, they throw themselves. They 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 let them, they, they let it all hang out like who they were. Mm-hmm. But some people change for the better, and I've seen it. Yeah. I've seen it almost every day, really. You know. So I would say to society, all people really want at the end of the day is it's an opportunity. You know, that's all. Yeah, and we just have to be willing to give it to them. Yeah, and, and that's really like the bottom line to that because once a person's given opportunity, and I and I, I could tell you um, more than a few success stories of people that I've met in. That I, when I was incarcerated and what they're doing now in, in, in society. Some guys, they're just doing fantastic work, you know? Yeah. I mean, amazing work. And, 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 but, and but it really didn't, it doesn't surprise me because I, I, seen, I seen the growth from these individuals when I was incarcerated with them. And when you're incarcerated with people, especially when you're around them for a certain amount of years, you sort of get a feel for them, how, how genuine they are, how serious they are about moving forward, because they sort of conduct themselves a certain way, you know? Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I, I, I know a lot of guys that, that are doing really good for themselves right now, you know? That's awesome to hear. Guidance counselors, they actually running organizations on the other side. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot of people like that. Just again, they just need the opportunity to do, to do it. Yeah, 
Definitely. And here's where I want to end sort of coming from that is I feel like it kind of like what you were talking about earlier, where there's this box you have to check, right? There's kind of this almost like name tag label that's associated with, you know, formerly incarcerated, whatever it is, you know, that you've for some people that you've done. And in your case, just simply the fact that you spend time in prison that people are sort of forced to wear. And I want to inspire the rewriting of those labels, of those name tags. And I would love to ask you, what would you, if you could have your label, your name tag written there saying anything that you want for people to see when they see you, when they meet you, what would you want it to say? Wow. (laughs) That's um. Um, wow, that's a good one. So for me, um, given my entire history and how I grew up and what I went through in prison and how I got there and all that stuff is, um, if I had a name tag, I was, I would move. I would just say, um, just give me an opportunity. Like that, my tag would say, give me an opportunity. Just what I mentioned earlier about the pre- people in prison. That's, that's what we really want. Uh, even though I was in there innocently, I still wanted to know, I still wanted an opportunity. Yeah. So when I got out and I was able to work with the legal society and it wasn't paying much and all that stuff. But that really wasn't the point for me, right? Because all I wanted was an opportunity to work. I wanted—I never had a job before, right? So I just wanted—I just wanted to work. I didn't—I didn't want to do construction. But if I had to do it, I would have. Trust me. But the fact that I—I I got into a field that I—that I was kind of familiar with, but at the same time, there was some other stuff that I needed to learn about this particular field. When you're talking about dealing with family issues and, and juveniles and st- you know, stuff like that, so that was—that was something that I was. Um, I was interested in doing, but more importantly for me, I just wanted the opportunity to work. But I also wanted the opportunity, if I ever got the chance, I used to like, I used to sit in the prison yard sometimes by myself in really, really cold weather, sitting on a bench, just crying, like looking up at the sky, like all I want is a chance. And like, I'm like begging somebody to give me a chance to get out of this place and I can do it, you know? And so I just wanted, also wanted the opportunity because my opportunities were just not restricted to having a job and wanting a job and wanting to work. My opportunities was also just wanting to get out on the outside and just live. I just wanted to go inside of a store, you know, buy me an ice cream you know, or whatever, right? Just to walk in because I couldn't do those things for a long time, you know, and I never took those things for, for granted. I guess I did, took them for granted to some extent, you know, but I just want the opportunity to just do so many different things. Even right now, for example, in talking to you, I can walk outside my apartment and go wherever I want, literally. I mean, literally go wherever I want, right? When you're in prison, you're like you you in the constricted area all the time, every day. It's like it's it's repetitive. It's repetitive. But for me now, there's just so many choices available, right? And so, opportunity, opportunity is everything. Oh yeah, thank you so much, David. Thank oh, yeah, you uh, for being here. It's always, as I said, it's such a pleasure being with you and. Yeah, you have lots of love from the whole Pallier family. I oh, appreciate it. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me on this interview. I was it was a pleasure to do it, and so glad to, to be in touch with you. And you know, and you accepted me the way you have, and and the way you did when you first met me. It was almost like I knew you for years because your sister talked so much about you. And and so when I first met you, I wasn't even nervous or anything because I felt like I knew you already. And, I felt you know, that way and, too. And of course, I met your husband. And, and so it was just fantastic. It was, it was, 
life is good. I mean, you know, I had some, some challenges in my life, obviously, most recently and over a couple of years and all that stuff. But I'm bouncing back from that in terms of, you know, losing my mom and, you know, st- but, you know, that's life and life goes on. And and I, I appreciate you, Zoe, for having me on. I really do. Thank you for having me. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us on our mission to shift hearts and minds and the conversation around criminality and incarceration. If you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, there are a couple of things you can do to support the show. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast, where you can access more content like this. See you next time.